So, Rick, I understand you were at the oral arguments at the Supreme Court on Monday. Yes, I was. And you're now back in Los Angeles? I am. Great. So did you go out, especially for the uh, hearing? Yes, yes. Although what was nice is that while I was waiting in line to get in, I I ran into Richard Cohenberg and Peter Arcidiacono, who were the two experts used by SFFA in the cases. And they're both good friends. So the three of us ended up spending a lot of time together afterwards discussing our impressions of the case. Fantastic. I would love, to, I mean, if, if, if you can, without violating any confidences from them, I would love to hear what they had to say about it as well. Why don't you mm-hmm. just launch in and tell us, you know, you can tell us anything from, you know, what it was actually like, probably you've been to the Supreme Court before I, and I never have, but tell us anything you want to tell us about that day. Well, so uh, this is the fourth time I've been to the Supreme Court. The first time was when I was 14. And my mom and I were visiting my dad, who was, who was doing some work in Washington, D.C. And we were sightseers and we wandered around the Capitol grounds one day and thought, Hey, let's go into the Supreme Court building. And we just wandered in and the court was in session. And we, we walked into the main chamber, sat down in the second row and listened for a while and then left. And it's not that way at all anymore. The, the chambers are always packed. There's always keen competition to get seats. I was very lucky to get a seat for this hearing, even though I, I have a few connections and, and, you know, security around the screen court, of course, it's very high. So it's a, it's a very different environment now than, than it was back in the 1970s. The other thing that's changed from the last two times I was there is that there's a much more relaxed format. So traditionally the court would allow one hour of argument for a case. And the two parties would be there. Sometimes the Solicitor General would be there and they'd each have a designated amount of time. And when the chief said go, they would launch into their presentation. And usually sometime in the third or fourth sentence, they would be cut off by the justice asking questions. And then it'd be a free for all. And everyone would be trying to get a word in edgewise. And that would basically go on until the 20 minutes for that speaker were over. So they changed the system apparently during COVID and, and they've kept the more relaxed format. So the way that it worked on, on Monday is first of all, there were two cases. So they, they were knew they were going to spend more time. And in each case, each, each of the parties had an uninterrupted opening statement. I never heard an uninterrupted opening statement in the Supreme Court before, but these only went for maybe three minutes each. And then the justices asked questions and that was pretty, I'd say calm and, and, and respectful and no one seemed in a hurry to cut the lawyers off. And then when the justices sort of had been going on for a half hour or so, then the chief turned to each one in order of seniority and asked them if they had any final questions. So the whole thing was much more civilized and decorous than for the traditional Supreme court. And I liked it. I mean. It meant that the overall oral argument ended up running five hours. So, you know, strong bladders become an important prerequisite to attend the court hearing. <laughs> but it felt much more as though people were allowed to complete thoughts and that there was a real kind of discussion going on rather than sort of point scoring. I listened to the whole five hours off and on, and I agree with you. The, it was very polite and fairly well organized. Yeah. Yeah. 
Now, the disappointing part for, for my friends, the experts, and me was the degree to which the discussion was, was focused a lot on what I would call stereotypes about affirmative action and, and sort of the simplistic arguments. To me, what's exciting about the Harvard and UNC cases is that there's a much deeper factual record than has ever been the case in earlier in earlier decisions. And I had a little to do with that. I was consulted by Edward Bloom when he was thinking of filing new challenges back around 2013. And I said, you know, the problem with, with Fisher, which he also orchestrated, is that you have these principles being tested, but, but the, the factual record is very thin. Why not pick a couple of universities and then sort of focus on really digging into how admissions actually works? And he did that. And, you know, Peter Sidiakono and Richard Collenberg, the two experts, were extremely qualified to dig into those facts and produced excellent reports. The universities hired experts too, which, you know, their reports varied in quality. But in general, there was a very rich factual record. So you could, you could talk, for example, about just how large references are. And you could talk about what exactly the trade-offs were in using race-neutral alternatives. And there was very little discussion about the, the size of preferences. When Justice Jackson said, well, you know, isn't race just one of 40 things that are considered as diversity factors? Not even the lawyers came back and said, well, you know, if you compare geography, say, with race, it's given about 1% the weight that race is. You know, there could have been a discussion at that level, and there wasn't. You know, I, so that was, yeah. I, think, I think for data nerds like you and me that I totally agree with you. I, I felt the, the, the command of the statistical details of the people on the bench, at least in their, what they expressed, you know, was not impressive. Waxman said a bunch of things and maybe some other people said things like, as you just mentioned, that were a bit misleading. But then I was very reassured when, when Justice Roberts basically just blurted out, well, if you're an Asian kid, you know, you don't want to reveal that you're an Asian kid because then you'll be discriminated against because he sort of, it's possible that they did understand, some of the justices did, had digested the statistical information, but they just didn't dwell on it in the hearing. Yeah, that's true. And I think, I think their strategy it, what is to steer away from too much of the facts because that allows them to sidestep the the district court's holding. So in both UNC and Harvard, you have very long decisions by district court judges that basically just kind of embraced the university's factual findings and, and either ignored or discounted the factual findings of the, of the SFFA experts. And that puts the court in the position of either having to say, well, the lower courts are clearly erroneous. So we're just going to use our own factual, our own inspection of the factual record, or else they need to base their arguments on kind of more general ideas. And, and so they were going that strategy, that latter strategy quite a bit. And I think that's why they kept going, for example, back to this idea of what's the time limit and what exactly is the goal that you will know and you'll understand when you reach it. You know, th those were sort of simple-minded, but, but easily grasped and, and universal ideas that, that didn't require any engagement with the factual record. 
Yeah, I mean, I, you know, some people were complaining that, you know, Asians as such, Asians qua Asians, were not really ever really the focus of the discussion. And they, fo- they sort of focused on these uh, more general issues. And it mm-hmm. sounds like you think maybe that was part of their strategy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, a few very, a few important things did come up. There, there was a good discussion about the personal ratings and asking the Harvard attorney to explain why, why Asians got such low scores on the personal ratings. And that was, you know, that they asked Harvard's attorney that question about four times and he, he made sure that he never answered it. And they talked about the SES alternatives with some sophistication. And so Richard Kohlenberg, I think was, was less displeased than Peter Sidiakono about sort of the degree to which the court made some use of, of their research. Yeah. Regarding Arsidiakono, I thought one of the strongest things in the district level argument of SFFA was that when you looked only at unhooked applicants, so mm. applicants with hooks are only 5% of the applicant pool. And those the are the ALDs, right? Yes. So that, well, I think there's, so I, I think I could be wrong about this. You should correct me, but my understanding is hooks include things like being an athlete, being mm-hmm. a person of interest on the Dean's list, you know, perhaps because your parents are potential big donors, being a legacy mm-hmm. and yep. 95% of the applicants don't fit in any of those categories. Right. The 5% that are in those categories account for a third of the freshman class. And so that's because they're much stronger than the average applicant. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean that, yes, the, the, it, I, I don't mean to make any conclusion about that, but, but right. a third of the admits are roughly a third or 30% of the admits come from that 5%. But the yep. 95% are really, that is the aspirations of the average American kid who excels in high school and doesn't have any real hooks, but is just trying to get in as a good student or someone who did great extracurriculars or student leadership, but doesn't have any special connection to Harvard and is not super rich. And yep. those guys only get, they end up being two thirds of the class. And I thought one of the striking things was Peter Arcidiakono broke out that group the un, unhooked kids, but they're 95% of the applicant pool. And there he found very strong for discrimination against Asian Americans. And mm-hmm. he challenged, I believe, in the exchange he had with the Harvard expert, David Carr, he challenged David to you know, refute that finding because obviously the, the, the 5% are a very special, weird case, right? Th- those are very, you know, very, very... Yeah you know, special in different kids, like someone who's going to be on the football team or somebody whose parents are major donors, you know, just talk about average American kids, you know, who have no special connection to Harvard and are not recruited athletes. We should be able to look at them separately. And Peter did. Card refused to break out that analysis and address R.C. Diakono's point. And the SFFA lawyers made a special point in their brief that, look, it we don't care about the, if we just set aside the 5%, if you're discriminating within the 95% pool against Asians, that's it. That's still bad enough. And that was never addressed at just district level, I thought. And I was very disappointed that the district judge never really even addressed that point in her, in her opinion. That's right. And it's almost, I think if, if SFA, SFFA had it to do over again, they would probably do a less sophisticated analysis just because it would be harder to ignore. In other words, 
they, they did, they excluded the ALDCs from most of the analysis to really sort of try to be as intellectually honest as they could be. But then they found Harvard continually saying, well, you know, the, it would look different if you included the LDCs. And it's true, it would look somewhat different, but, but all of the basic conclusions would, would hold up. It's just that the magnitudes change when, when you do or do not include those folks. And for many of the questions in the case, it's more relevant to look at the non-ALDCs. So Harvard sort of turned its analytic weakness into a rhetorical advantage in a lot of ways. And it made it easier for the court, which I don't think ever really understood most of the expert analysis, to just sort of also take the path of least resistance. Yeah, the, I mean, at the district level, I think her name was Judge Burroughs, is Judge Burroughs. She, she more or less just parroted the Harvard side of things as far as any statistical issues went. It was, it was amazing. And, you know, so one of the striking things, Steve, is since the case, Peter has gone on to write and get published in peer-reviewed journals four articles based on his expert reports. David Card has, has published zero articles based on his research. And it's because, you know, his findings would not stand up to peer-review examination. Well, I, I think that's very plausible. I'm not surprised by what you just said, because it, it seemed to me that Arsidiakana was just being, doing a very straightforward defensible analysis and the conclusions were quite clear. You know, let me give you one example that, that actually was one of the few statistical links that came up in the oral argument. So David Card created a, a graph that's in his report. It's a very prominent graph. And it shows what the pseudo R squared is if you do a logistic analysis predicting emission at Harvard, controlling for some single factor. So he's got one regression that uses the academic index as a control along with race. No, no, I'm sorry. He just has an academic index and then he has one that just has legacy and one that just has athletes, so on, personal rating, so on. And the last bar is predicting admission, just controlling for race. And that bar is very, very small. The pseudo R squared is less than 1%. And, and Cart claimed, and, and the court seemed to buy at the argument on Monday, that this was proof of how unimportant race was in emissions, that you got this tiny, tiny little R squared. But what that actually shows, if you think about it, is that Harvard, it's, it's, it's the most dramatic proof you could come up with of racial balancing at Harvard. Because what it means is Harvard strives to admit 6% of every, of every racial group of applicants, 6% of the blacks, 6% of the Asian Americans, a little less than 6% of the Asian Americans. So on and so forth. So if you if you admit six percent of every group, and then you run a regression and race is your only control, race will drop out of the equation. Right? Do you see that? Yep. And so the only way that you can get such a small number, especially when you admit you're using racial preferences, is if you're using race in a way to get exact proportionality with the applicant pool. Yeah, I. I, I felt cards. Well, I, yeah, I, I don't want to get, or maybe my audience would like it if we got into the, you know, the weeds of the, of the mm -hmm. expert, uh, opinions. But yeah, it felt to me like card was very deceptive throughout. And yeah. Arcidi yeah. on the other hand, was just being very straightforward in the way he did his analysis. Yeah. 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 
But the example I gave is just, it's, it's such a nice example of where you're doing something that looks kind of clever and you're actually proving your opponent's point beautifully. Yes. And, but no, and nobody in the room gets it. It's, this is the, this is the problem though, is that, you know, the judges are not themselves experts. Right. And I was very afraid. Well, I, I didn't know what, you know, as I started listening in on Monday, I didn't know whether we were going to end up being treated to an argument about the actual evidence, statistical evidence between Supreme Court justices. But what seems to be the case is that they came to whatever conclusions they, you know, were going to come to already well before they actually had the oral arguments. And so I, I doubt any of the justices had their minds changed by the particular statistical facts that were thrown out on Monday. Right. Most of what they were doing is trying out rhetorical pieces that they could use in their opinions. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're, they're trying out say, saying, okay, well, if, if, if I, if I use the, you know, Justice Gorsuch tried out his title six argument a few times. And, and I, I can tell you more about that if you're interested, you know, he basically trotted out a similar argument with, with most of the key lawyers just to see what the reaction was. Mm -hmm. And Justice Roberts tried out his argument about, you know, can you really define what, who's black? And Alito, uh, tried out his argument of, you know, how do you define diversity? How do you know when you've succeeded? And these are all clearly points that are going to be in their opinions. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you feel like you can tell from the, I don't know, the body language or the feels or something of uh, what happened Monday and what, what is going to happen? To, to a certain degree, you know, going in the only people whose votes, it was very clear. I think, I think it's always been clear that Jackson and Sotomayor and Kagan are going to vote to uphold Harvard and UNC. But the only conservative who, who I think were crystal clear based on prior records were Thomas and Alito. Roberts, there was some uncertainty because he's clearly in many cases striving to be kind of a voice of moderation. Mm -hmm. And then the other three conservatives were not on the court last time affirmative action came up. So, so I don't think anyone really knew for sure how they were going to come down on this issue. And, and even on Monday for the first four hours, Justice Barrett was seemed to be going out of her way not to tip her head. Mm -hmm. Yes. She was asking questions that were very, you know, very even handed. And then it seemed like towards the end, she just got picked off <laughs> and started asking more pointed questions that made it pretty clear that she, she's unhappy with the preference regimes. Do you think so, it was, do you think it was Waxman that ticked her off or can you pinpoint how she quit ticked her off? I don't know. I, it may have just been sort of cumulative. It's hard to hold yourself in for five hours, I imagine. <laughs> yes. Right. Right. But, uh, I felt by the end that, that all six conservatives and made pretty clear that they were going to rule against the universities. Mm -hmm. Now that said, there are three different ways that that could go. They, they could, they could just say under our existing precedents, Harvard and UNC have not, have not complied. So. You know, we're finding that they've, they've discriminated under Grutter. That's what, by, by the end of the argument, the, the Solicitor General had, had, had decided, yeah, I've got six votes, six votes against the universities. And she started pitching towards the end of the hearing 
that, that approach. You know, at the beginning, she was saying, Let, let's, let's rule in favor of the universities. By the end, she was saying, well, Justice says, I think you're going to rule against the universities, but do it narrowly. <laughs> yes. That was a very clear evolution. And, and Solicitor General, by the way, was super impressive, very smart, very, very articulate. Yeah. I, I, I want to say that as an advocate, I was extremely impressed by her. Yeah. As a scientist, I was completely unimpressed with her. She kept, well, yes. she kept using the military as an example. And I wonder if she knows that for enlisted you know, for people who volunteer for the military in the enlisted ranks, they're subject to a very strict psychometric test. There's no affirmative action and there's wildly disparate impact to the point where I think over 50% of African-Americans are below the threshold of what's required in order to be, to join the U.S. military. So, so the U.S. military is actually the worst example she could quote, but she kept, she kept trotting it out as an example of of what, why, what Harvard was doing is correct. Well, you know, the reason for that is that in 2003, the, the behind the scenes story is that, is that O'Connor changed her vote to support university of Michigan because of the brief submitted by the military. And you know, various people have, have signed the service academies as sort of the best arguments that the liberals can make that, that, that is likely to be effective with conservatives. And, and I think the argument is that. Sure. At the enlisted level, it's, it's very meritocratic, but the enlisted uh, men are still disproportionately URMs or, you know, say 25 to 30% URMs in the military. And if, if at the service academy level, we have no preferences, then it might only be, um, 10% URMs. I mean, out of the service academies, and that would create a disparity between the leadership and, and the enlisted men that would cause morale problems. I think that's the, that's the way they're trying to pitch the argument. Yeah. I think that argument on its own is okay, actually, but I think she ignored the elephant in the room, which is that, that the military refuses to deviate for the bulk of its recruitment, refuses to deviate from a meritocracy. And there are good reasons and very sound studies. Well, for why only, only at the enlisted level of those two, I, I think at the officer court, they are are pretty aggressively into interracial preferences. Oh, I, yes, that, that's certainly true. But, y- you know, in the, this is maybe a slight digression, but, you know, in the past, I think they could depend to some extent on, you know, the difficulty of the curriculum at the service academies or the rigor of universities that har- have ROTC programs that, you know, whoever got through those was pretty competent by the end. Yeah. And yep, yep. But that, you know, that situation's changing over time as, you know, for, I don't know if we talked about this the last time we were having a conversation, but most, almost all universities now have removed algebra two as a requirement for graduation. So, so you, even if your math scores are so low that it looks like you should take the, some remedial algebra two class in universities, which used to be the case. Now they've eliminated that because they found that to be a big bottleneck for mm-hmm. progression of affirmative action candidates on campus. Yeah. So, it's, so it's, everything is, you know, all the rigor has been removed now. Very discouraging. But, you know, just to linger a moment on the military example, I think, I think preferences are likely to work much better in, in say a service academy than at a college because the whole thrust of the service academies is total immersion in a new culture. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, you can't, 
you can't very easily opt out of the, the difficult courses in the service academies, right? And, and everything, you know, it's, it's a, it's a 16 hour a day experience. So that it seems to me that you're much more likely to actually develop sort of the latent talent and someone who may have had a crummy K-12 education and a service academy because it's such a thoroughgoing experience and kind of education at all levels. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if service academies actually have an impressive record of taking people with lower scores and having them sort of outperform their credentials. Yeah, I agree with that. And as I recall, there's even a one year program for, for example, enlisted men that they want to, you know, they want to prepare for the academy or sometimes athletes that they want to prepare for the academy. They have these, mm -hmm. I think, one year programs that try to catch them up academically so that they can, they can hack it at the, at the actual service academy. And I, I think that all those things are great. Those are the kinds of models that we should have if, if we have yeah. a action at, UCLA, we, we should invest the resources to help those kids that we admit with lower scores to, to really get ready before their freshman year so they can compete on, on even terms. Yeah. So, th so that ties into what I want to make about where the justices might come out. So, so if they rule against the universities, they can either have this narrow ruling I talked about before, or at the other extreme, they could say, Bruno was wrongly decided, uh, the 14th amendment prohibits consideration of race. We're getting rid of all this stuff. The middle way would be to say that what the universities are doing violates Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and therefore it's illegal. But we don't need to reach the constitutional issue, so we won't. That would leave the field open for Congress to craft compromises in the area of racial preferences. So they could decide that they could, they could pass an amendment to title six that said, we're going to allow the service academies to continue to consider race if they, you know, meet the following three conditions or will allow universities to consider race. If a, they can show the racial preferences are small, B, they're completely transparent. D, they have boot camp for students whose scores are more than a hundred points within. Something like that. And I think, I think that would be an exciting approach. You know, it would, it would put affirmative action like abortion back into sort of the democratic marketplace. I, and you know, Rick, I, I agree with you. I, I think in some way, I mean, obviously this is taking an optimistic view of that, of that possibility that yeah, would potentially spur some real innovation in trying to solve these problems. Whereas. Some people, some conservatives might really like the option one, but that might not actually lead society to actually, you know, progress. It could even lead the, to the universities just maybe doing what you see at the University of California, which is just disobey the state law with the impunity and just try to get away with things, maybe by eliminating test scores and things like that. Well, there's a very good analogy here, which is Brown versus Board of Education. So Brown you know, gets all the publicity for attacking segregation in public schools. But Brown had much, much less effect on what was going on in the South than, than the Civil Rights Act of 1964 did. It was only once Congress passed the law and thereby got the Department of Education, the Justice Department, 
involved as active participants, that desegregation happened in the Deep South. You know, Brown affected a few cities and maybe the border states in Tennessee, you know, things like that, Kansas. But Alabama and Mississippi didn't start desegregating until the 64 Act. So and I think the analogy is, is, is very relevant. I think if you, if you have a 14th Amendment decision here, you will see massive resistance by the universities. You'll see them behaving basically the way Alabama and Mississippi behaved after Brown. Or the way the University of California behaves after Prop 209. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's more complex, right? I mean, University of California, much of it didn't comply in good faith for first decade. And then as, as the administrators saw that, that the components of the university that disobeyed did not get sued, the argument against disobeying became harder and harder to, to sustain. Yes. You know, I, I, we're, we're a little bit like the justices here where we're talking about the broader impacts of this whole thing. Of course, I have, I, I'm concerned about these poor Asian American students. So, so, you know, under, under these different possibilities, I'm also concerned about whether they're going to start get, at what point they'll start getting a fair shake in, in admissions. And yep. so that's a se whole separate thing. Yep. Yeah. Well, you know, I talked to the SFA. SF of Atreides Monday evening. I went to a dinner that Edward Bloom hosted while I was in Washington. And they, they were, they reminded me that these cases were bifurcated. All the proceedings up to now have been about whether there's a violation. If there is, there's, there's a whole phase two on remedies. So, so this is going to go on for a while, but you know, after Fisher one was decided, it was very striking to Richard Collenberg and me, how rapidly the universities you know, sort of shifted towards wanting to have a serious conversation about race neutral alternatives. In, in 2013, 2014, there were a lot of great discussions among university presidents and a lot of progress towards, towards implementing some race neutral stuff and paying more attention to socioeconomic status. And then when Fisher two came out, it was like, oh, okay, we don't have to worry about that stuff anymore. So, you know, if there was a ruling based on title six in June. I think a lot of university presidents would, would try to organize serious national discussions about race neutrality. Yeah, I, I, I thought it was quite bold of the SFFA attorney to, you know, really highlight one of their proposals, which one of their models in which actually, for example, all legacy preferences dropped. Yeah. And I, I somehow can't believe Harvard is ever going <laughs> to completely drop that. I mean, the money, the amount of money involved, this is so huge. But, but who knows? Well, you know, Owenberg has done some research on that and, uh, there's not very strong evidence that the legacy preferences drive contributions that much. Yeah, um, I should, I should correct what yeah. I said. I, I didn't say what I really meant. I, yes. I, I didn't mean legacy so much as just them being able to classify yeah. you as on the Dean's interest list because your father could donate hundred million dollars to the library. Yeah. Well, well, they'll keep doing that. No one will figure out how to stop them from doing that. <laughs> but I'll tell you, I'll tell you another interesting story. So there's a guy, I guess he's at George Washington named Alan Morrison. Who, have you ever heard of Alan Morrison? No, I, I'm not familiar with him. He, he's, he's not, he's not sort of a nationally recognizable name, but he was, he, he was a close colleague of Ralph Nader and helped as public citizen back in 
you know, the late sixties, early seventies. And he's still around and he's, he's a professor at George Washington. And, you know, obviously he's very well known as a, as a, as a liberal. And, and he got in touch with Colin Bergen and, and other mutual friends and said, you know, I, I, I would really like to write something about the abuse of, of legacy admissions as a brief in the Harvard case. And he ended up asking my help to try and find an organization on whose behalf he could write this brief. And, and I struck out and finally I said, well, how about, how about my wife? <laughs> so Morrison wrote this brief, it's liking legacy admissions. And, and it was submitted in my wife's name, which was not implausible. I mean, she's a Caltech administrator. She's a, you know, as you know, kind of a well-known astrophysicist, but, but still <laughs> not someone who has been involved in the affirmative action debate. And, and that brief ended up sort of being the one that was most talked about on Monday, because as you know, you know, multiple justices sort of said, well, what about the argument that Harvard is by definition, not not meeting our narrow tailored because they're still using legacies, which have a disparate racial impact. And, you know, you, you follow the argument? Yes. I, I didn't, I didn't catch the connection though to Fiona. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. So she's, she's the name on that brief. It's, it was, it was written by Alan Morton on behalf of Fiona Harrison, who, who read it and signed it. <laughs> oh, that's great. What a great story. Yeah. And it was, you know, I mean, the, the, Amicus briefs in general did not seem to figure much in the discussion on Monday, even though there were one of them. And interestingly, you know, over the years, there's been a steady shift in the makeup of these. And in Gruder, briefs on behalf of the university outnumbered briefs on behalf of the plaintiffs by four to one. In Harvard and UNC, it was three to two. Mm -hmm. And that, that's, that's pretty significant because an awful lot of the pro-university briefs were, were just kind of these institutional, institutionally generated briefs. You know, we knew, we knew that the association of universities was going to submit a brief on behalf of Harvard. So that three to two ratio really betokens, I think, an interesting intellectual shift and, and a change in the debate in America. And mm -hmm. you've got people like Alan Morrison. Arguing against, uh, arguing against Harvard. And that's one reason why it's going to be easier for the justices to strike references down. You know, I think almost as bad as the misrepresentation of the statistical facts around <laughs> affirmative action, like the size of preference granted and things like this. It's, you know, usually misrepresented when you read an article about it. As large seems to be the way the polling around affirmative action is discussed because if I read in the New York Times, I read 70% of Americans and 70% of Asian Americans are in favor of Harvard's position. But then, you know, if I look in some other place, I'll see numbers. Wall Street Journal. Exactly the opposite. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And it's because, I mean, you know why that is, right? The, uh, I think the way they, they phrase the question makes a big difference. Yeah. If you ask about affirmative action, most people support it. If you ask about racial preferences, most people oppose it. Yep. And, and, you know, something that's, that's often lost in these discussions is that the justices clearly will not strike down affirmative action. Whatever they do will, will only affect racial preferences, though that programs that take account of race are clearly not going to be affected by this. And uh, efforts to try to increase the pipeline to improve educational opportunities for people going to disadvantaged high schools, none of that's going to be affected by, by this ruling. So. 
the, the accurate question to ask is how, how do you feel about racial preferences? Right. Yeah. And, and there, I think the polling agrees with what you said, which is that there probably has been some shift in, or at least, at least we know that most Americans don't like racial preferences. Yeah. The public, you know, the public numbers have been pretty steadily around 70 to 75% against racial preferences. What I think, I think the more significant changes among the public intellectuals. It's interesting that you say that. I don't disagree with it. It could very well be true. I think it's true. But if I, if I define a, a narrower set of people, like people in academia, not public intellectuals, but people in academia, I feel like anyone who even says they're opposed to affirmative action is, you know, ready. It could be canceled right away on most cases. Yeah. So there, yeah, I, you're, yeah, you're right. You're right. That's absolutely true. But that, but that is part of what's fueling the public intellectual concern about this. Right. I mean, I get, I get, you know, in my own interactions, I just find journalists, for example, are much more willing to engage doubts about racial preference programs now than they were 15 years ago. Yes. Um, it's like, it's, it has sunk in that there are some really significant problems with these programs. Yes. I, I and, and one of them is the, is this intellectual, you know, is that it sort of fuels this affirmative action is, is pretty closely intertwined with the suppression of academic freedom. Yes, absolutely. I mean, in a narrow sense, if you do research on it, you're only allowed to come to one conclusion. <laughs> that's a, that's definitely an abrogation of intellectual freedom. But then also you, the people who benefit from affirmative action tend to, I think for self-protective psychological purposes have to defend it the rest of their lives, like Sotomayor. Yeah. And yeah. so I think that's not good either. Yeah. Well, what's happened, what I observe is that, is that the growth of critical race studies, for example, has led to an increasing ghettoization of, uh, of black academics on topics that are kind of intertwined with DRS one way or another. Mm -hmm. And increasingly their position is number one. We must talk about race because race is very important. And number two, when we talk about race, the only way you can discuss it is through a CRS lens. And the combination of those things is really poisonous. And, and, and so a lot of people, I think maybe not consciously yet, but they, they sort of sense that this whole culture of preferences is building, feeding into this ghettoization of, of the academic culture. I absolutely agree with your conclusion. And I admire your optimism about the, that, that, that there's some sort of generalized change in sentiment on this point on campus. I, I, that I'm not sure about at all, but I hope you're right. Well, well, you know, you've heard of this, maybe you're even coming to this academic freedom conference at Stanford. Uh, yeah. Someone just invited me. Well, I don't know if I will be attending, but somebody just made me aware of it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that seems to be a, a, a some extent unprecedented events they get a lot of big names together to sort of voice concern with depression of of free thought on campuses and you know so that's a tangible manifestation and the growth of heterodox academy is a tangible manifestation i um, i think all those things are positive but the way i would describe it is that you know there's a war between two sides our side got routed 
and driven off the field. And now some small guerrilla resistance groups are forming in the forest. <laughs> that, that's, how, that's how it appears to me. They, they are forming. Yeah. Groups are forming, but you know, we're the ones hiding in the forest. Yeah. Yep. Yep. There you go. You know, I, I cut you off or I, I sort of digressed. I think you suggested three possible outcomes if the conservatives prevail on the court. And I only let you get through two. And I think there was a third one I didn't let you. Well, I, I pretty much covered them. I mean, one is, is, is find the universities to have violated Grutter. That would leave the whole framework in place. It would just say, you guys did not narrowly tailor. Yeah. Option two is strike down Grutter under the 14th Amendment. And option three is limit Grutter by saying that Title VI is very clear in non-aligned racial preferences. We're not going to, we're not going to say in this decision that it's unconstitutional to use racial preferences, but we are going to say that it violates title six and therefore Congress would need to act before the sorts of things that Harvard and UNC are doing is permissible. Do you have any probability distribution in your head over those three outcomes? I think the 14th amendment route is the most likely followed by title six, followed by really within Grutter. I see. So you, you think the outcomes are biased toward the more dramatic. Yeah, because what I was hearing Monday was a lot of rhetorical preparation for taking the 14th Amendment route and, and basically saying, you know, I, I think what, what Roberts was suggesting was we don't really have to overrule Grutter. We can simply point out that Grutter itself, that all of our past decisions on affirmative action have implicitly had some time limit and have said, we're only going to tolerate this if universities get their act together and phase out racial preferences. And we're seeing no sign that that's happening. So we're just, we're just saying time limit is over. So that, that would be, you know, that would be kind of a clever strategy. You, you wouldn't be overruling Grutter. You'd be, you'd be sort of confirming the logic of Grutter. I also sense that in the questions that they asked for me, I personally, that seems like a strange way to do it, but, but yeah, I could understand that it seemed like they were laying the groundwork for that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to tell, but, but, and, you know, predicting Supreme court opinions is, is deeply hazardous and yes. uh, I've screwed it up before. So yeah, I, I think it's unpredictable what they'll do, but, but, but you could certainly see the justices trying out ideas that would, would let them go in that direction. Is there evidence that maybe from their own comments that they do really quote, try out their arguments there in that setting. It, I, it, sometimes it just seems like it's stream of consciousness. It's almost like some grad students in a coffee room just discussing and they, whatever, <laughs> whatever pops in their head, they ask a question or something, but I, I don't, I'm not very familiar with the court. So I, I don't know if that's accurate or not. Well, I'm, you know, I don't consider myself a common law expert by any means. I've, I've kind of gotten into court watching mostly through the affirmative action lens. So there, there are people who would have much more informed opinions than I do about this, but nonetheless, I'll give my opinion, which is that I did have a very clear sense that each justice came in with two or three ideas they wanted to explore. And they were mostly trying to engage in a collective discussion, but they wanted to make sure that they got in ideas that they wanted to try out. Yeah, I think that's fair. There was certainly some consistency in what each justice was saying. Yeah. 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 Kavanaugh clearly wanted to explore this issue of how, how schools treat religion. 
mm-hmm. and maybe seem to be hitting it and sort of an issue with the underrepresentation of evangelical Christians. Mm-hmm. And Gorsuch clearly wanted to try out his Title VI arguments and so on and so forth. Can you reveal what was said at the dinner organized by Ed Bloom? Oh, nothing, nothing. It was mostly celebratory. I mean, I think they were feeling pretty optimistic, but I was at a similar dinner after the Fisher one oral arguments and they were, they were really more optimistic than men events proved to be justified. Yes. So yeah, crypt was kind of predictable and not necessarily revealing. Seems to me they have more reason to be optimistic this time than with Fisher, but obviously I can't, can't be certain of anything. Yeah, they do. I mean, there are, there are six conservative votes now, you know, and, and remember that Jackson is recused from the Harvard case. So there are only two clear votes for Harvard. That's very bad for Harvard. (laughs) I can't see Harvard really prevailing in this one. (laughs) Yeah. Well, right. And the tone was much, people were, the tone on Monday was much more aggressive against Harvard than against USC. I mean, you know. Even the Solicitor General was not willing to defend discrimination against Asian Americans. Yes. The, 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 the funny thing about Burroughs' opinion, you know, at the district level was, uh, she sort of at first said, well, you know, I trust these statistical arguments that there was no discrimination. But then later in her opinion, she said, of course, it's, it's okay for them to do it in the interest of diversity. So I didn't hear a lot of that in the, in the courtroom. On no. No, I mean, yeah, Burroughs' arguments were just, you know, really goofy and very ideological. And I, I did like that, you know, Kagan, for example, I thought was distancing herself from the district court. Uh, you know, I don't think, I don't think they want to be in the position of heavily defending what the district court did. I, I didn't think Waxman helped himself by constantly saying, look, the district court found there's absolutely no evidence of, <laughs> you know, I don't think he helped himself <laughs> by saying that because. Yeah. Yeah. But that's what that, you know, that, that's, that's, that's sort of their best argument. I, I was in a debate with Erwin, Erwin Chemerinsky last fall. Yes. About the cases and, 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 and Erwin's very self-confident pronouncement. He's always very self-confident was, <laughs> of course, the Supreme Court can't, can't even take these cases because, you know, they, they were reports to have very comprehensive findings of fact. And, and so those facts are established. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, so I wasn't, I didn't quite understand. So not, not knowing much about the law, I didn't quite understand how that works. So if I didn't know whether the Supreme court would be bound by the findings of fact at the lower court level, and if they disagreed with findings of fact, they should actually explore them, you know, in their own proceedings. I didn't know how that works. Well, it's interesting. So in our system, we generally defer to juries or in the case of bench trials, judges to make factual findings. So those are the fact finders and then the, and then the judges in a jury trial or the appellate judges in a bench trial are the, are the folks evaluating what the law is. So the lower, the lower court findings of facts are binding unless the higher court determines that they're quote unquote, clearly erroneous, which is not supposed to be a trivial standard. Right. There is supposed to be deference that the, 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 the difference here though, is that the, the reason for that rule is that it's a jury. The, the classic function of a jury is to 
hear people on the witness stand and decide who's lying and who's telling the truth. And that's something that, you know, as we know from the Zoom calls, much easier to do in person. Right. So, so that's a sensible division of, of, of labor. But in a case like this, where, you know, the, the credibility of witnesses really is irrelevant. And what matters is, is the data in the trial record. There should be much less deference to the lower court's findings of fact. I see that though. So, so the, so the Supreme Court could and, and, you know, does have a lot of discretion to pull out their version of the facts. What was striking to me on Monday was, was the degree to which they were sort of steering clear of that, that, that kind of goes to my first point that, that, you know, that there wasn't that much discussion of the data on Monday. And I think, you know, I think there's a, a little bit of reluctance to sort of say, well, yes, the district court said that, but, but, but they obviously didn't understand what our city was arguing. So it'll be interesting to see if, if they, if they get into that, that sort of ground when they're writing their opinions. Yeah. I, I, I felt for. Professor Arsiakno, because I, I felt he could have been accorded some, what's the right word? Not the retribution, some, gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on the word, but he, he, he could have, you know, if, if the justices had expressed explicitly that they found his analysis convincing and the other analysis not convincing, yeah. that would have been, that probably would have been, been a Yeah, it would have been nice for at least one of them to make that point. And, and there were so many different places where they could have made that point. Yeah. And I think Roberts kind of did, but in a, in a, in a very like uh, indirect way, but it made, it made yeah. very clear that he had come to his own conclusion about what was going on. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Vind- well, I, I hope, we're hoping their opinions, they do, if they do, they do get into it. Yes. The word I was searching for was vindication. So I think Professor mm-hmm. Hacknell may still get his vindication when the, when the final opinion of the majority is written. Yeah. Yeah, they'll be, they'll feel much more secure when they're drafting things and they have, I'm sure that they've, among the justices, they have several, several clerks who are good empiricists. And so they may feel much more comfortable doing it in that context. Yeah. Given, given after listening to the oral arguments, my model, my hypothetical is that among some of the trusted clerks for the conservative side, there are people who have looked at the empirics and are confident and are advising their seniors that, you know, indeed, <laughs> our city should prevail. That, that's what I think is going on. Hmm. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, I hope, I hope so. Well, great. Well, we're nearing an hour. Is there anything that you want to add about the experience? You, you can deviate from the trial itself. You could, you could talk about anything you want. Well, it was great fun. I've never been, you know, as I say, I've, I've been there three times before, but I, I've been sufficiently immersed in, in, in these cases that but I sort of knew the context of every question that came up and, and we, you know, what the possible answers were. And, and that was a lot of fun. I mean, just to, you know, it, it made being in the room, you know, especially delightful because I could sort of mind meld to some extent with the, with the other parties in the room. What's striking is, you know, how small the live audience is. There are, you know, the room holds maybe 150 people and there are a lot of seats for the lawyers and the parties and the immediate family, the journalists, like that. So there were maybe 20 of us who had, who were sort of had reserved seats as members of the general public. And then they admitted only five people from the enormous line that was waiting to get in for the available public seats. Mm. So that's a shame in a way, but it, it does, it does make the experience, if you're in the room, very intimate. 
Were were there actual plaintiffs in attendance? Edward Bloom was there. He was he was sitting in the row in front of me. But is is he really the plaintiff? I thought it had to be some Asian kid who's the actual plaintiff. Yeah. Well, they are still anonymous as far as I know. I see. There were there were a number of Asian Americans in the room. There were some influential Asian American civil rights leaders in the room. But I, I don't know if I don't know if any of the SFA lean lean members were there. Interesting. Well, you know, Rick, in the last time we spoke, you said that your mismatch paper, you know, has been widely read. And yep. I think you even said, and I, this was no boast, I think you were just be stating fact that you had never met a law school professor who was unfamiliar with the paper. Yep. And I bet the Supremes are also familiar with your paper. I'm not sure. I mean, uh, Roberts certainly is. Roberts and Alito certainly are. And Thomas. Yeah, those three, definitely. I don't know if any of the others are. Mismatch was definitely not a topic on Monday. And SFFA consciously decided pretty early in their strategy that they were not going to, they were not going to seek data on outcomes. Mm -hmm. They were just going to focus on the admissions process. And, and the whole discussion of mismatch, you know, in a way in the court was perhaps irrevocably <laughs> affected by Justice Scalia's comments in 2015 at Fisher 2. Just a few weeks before he died, he, he described mismatch in like the, the, the least sensitive way imaginable. Yes, I remember <laughs> that. That was very unfortunate. And then the New York Times roasted him and, and, you know, and for a while, mismatch just became like almost a taboo topic. And I think, you know, both the parties and the conservatives of the court don't want to go down that road. They don't want to write this in a way that appears to stigmatize black achievement. But. There is a, there is kind of a new wave of mismatch research coming up. And, and I think there's going to be some discussion of it in, in, you know, January through March. The most disturbing mismatch arena right now for me is the training of doctors. Yeah. So they've, they've now eliminated a lot of the standards for, you know, specialization, et cetera. So that, that's an arena where it's, it's, it's really very dangerous to have you know, undertrained people. And then, and, and the way that you would study mismatch there would be pretty gruesome because you would look at malpractice suits and, you know, wrongful deaths, things like this that resulted from undertrained, uh, doctors. Well, you know, someone asked me to, to look into what was someone who was not a, a pro mismatch partisan. It was, uh, ethics group was organizing a debate with people at academic medicine. And I, so I was in mind to write an article a couple of years ago and I spent some time looking into it. And there's actually a lot of, a lot of very powerful evidence of large mismatch effects. Similar to what I did with law schools in my original piece. In other words, you can, A, you, you can see much higher attrition rates from medical school for minorities. B, there's a huge racial disparity on medical board exams that parallels the disparity on bar exams. C, as a result of that, you could tell that, that blacks who, who enter medical school with decent credentials end up entering a board certified specialty at dramatically lower rates than whites with comparable credentials. So it's a very clear demonstration that, that, you know, not only is there a danger of letting people in who are ultimately going to be unqualified, but, but more seriously, a lot of the potentially qualified folks are being put in schools that are so elite that they're learning less and therefore becoming less qualified. And if you, if you just look at the aggregate numbers of blacks admitted to medical school versus blacks who are practicing doctors, there's this big gap. So the whole argument, which came up repeatedly on Monday, that we have to preserve affirmative action so that we can keep 
you know, the medical field integrated. It's just preposterous. It's, it, it's, it's quite likely that we're doing the opposite with large references. We're, we're making it less racially diverse than it would be if we, if we got rid of the preferences. I see. I, you know, it's, it's, I, I'm glad you clarified that because what you're saying is that because of the mismatch effect, while they're in medical school, you end up producing less doctors or less specialists than you otherwise would if they'd been matched to the right medical school environment. Yeah. And, exactly. and I was sort of stuck on this other thing, which is that if you drop all the standards and just pass people through, yes. you get, you end up with, you know, perhaps dangerously trained doctors. Yeah. And that's a concern too. But, but, but this other phenomenon is, is just an awful tragedy, right? That you're, right. you're taking potential talent and throwing it away. Yep. Did you come out of that room on Monday in an optimistic mood for the future of higher education in this country? Well, it's Supreme Court may end up doing the generally right thing for reasons that I, you know, that I might only half embrace. But I think that, you know, and, and you probably agree with me that the, the the way that academia has been evolving, there's clearly no internal mechanism for accountability in any of this stuff within academia. And it's, it's, it's one of those, I hope, rare situations where you've got kind of a internal dynamic of corruption that, that requires court intervention. So whether the court does it for narrow ideological grounds or because they, they fully get sort of the dysfunction of the system, I think that breaking down what Harvard and UNC are doing is, is, is a big step in the right direction. I completely agree with you. And you know, my kids are unfortunately just going to miss the, <laughs> just going to miss the effects of this in their own college applications. So, um, it's not going to help my kids, but I hope it helps some other kids. So they're already in college. I, I, I don't want to say too much about my kids yeah. uh, in public, yeah. right? but I, I think the, you know, whenever the impacts of this decision are implemented, it'll be just a bit late for my kids. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I mentioned when I wrote my original law school article back in 2005 that I had a bi biracial son. And happy to report that I don't think that, that he was ever mismatched. He did pretty well in high school, but he, he decided not to try to go to the most elite school he could get, could get into, possibly, possibly in part with a racial preference. He went to uh, University of Washington and Washington had recently passed a ban on preferences and there was really no sign that, that he received one and you know he was in the top half of his class anyway he just in may became a licensed veterinarian great fantastic and he's really happy and and yeah so society's perception of his race has had no harmful effect on, on his life i think <laughs> that's great well I, I, that that's our hope for the future yeah exactly all right, Rick, I want to thank you for your time and hopefully we'll have you back on the podcast again. You 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 might be our first regular. <laughs> Maybe in June. All right, really. All right, Steve. These conversations are wonderful. So I really really appreciate you reaching out. Likewise. Thank you very much. Take care.